Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Free Exchange. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. This week, I was delighted to welcome Peter Pomerantsev to CapEx Towers. Peter is one of the world's leading writers on propaganda and fake news, and has even given evidence to the US Congress on Russian disinformation. He boasts a fascinating and varied CV, having spent many years working as a TV producer in Putin's Russia, an experience he documented in gripping style in his first book, Nothing is Real and Everything is Possible. Uh, And if you haven't read that, I thoroughly recommend it. We sat down to discuss his latest book, This is Not Propaganda, Adventures in the War Against Reality, in which Peter travels the world, finding out how despots and demagogues are twisting the truth and how we can start to fight back. Peter, thank you very much for joining us on Free Exchange. Now, uh, you've recently written a book called This is Not Propaganda, which we're going to come on to later in great depth. Um, But first of all, do you want to tell us a little bit about your own background um you were born in the i think the soviet union and moved to the uk lived in germany then you went back to russia it's been quite a sort of diverse life you've led yeah no it's uh it's it's definitely a wandering life um but uh sort of centered around the uk so quite right i was born in kiev in 1977 but my father was a soviet dissident and he was arrested for the heinous crime of um, distributing books by Vladimir Nabokov and uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, which, which seems absurd now, doesn't it? But 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 then it was uh, you'd get seven years of prison, five years of exile for for such a heinous crime. Um, but it was a period when the Soviet regime was actually getting rid of a lot of dissidents. If if it was less of a bother to get rid of them than making them martyrs a lot of the time. So there was a small immigration at that point, and we ended up in Britain, actually, in, in, in London. My father worked at the Russian service of the BBC, so I was very much a child of Bush House. All my earliest memories are in Bush House, where the World Service oh, right, was. Okay. And there's a lot about that in my new book, kind of memories of, of, of the Cold War Bush House. So I, I grew up here, but then um, my father went on to work in Munich, uh, so I lived there for a bit and went to a very strange and interesting and really inspiring institution called the European School, which was a special set of schools created by Jean Monnet and the founders of the EU, largely meant for EU Eurocrats, but also for, for open to others, which were kind of specially designed to create a new kind of European human. And if you want, we can get into that, into that story. But then, you know, then I, then I went to, you know, I was a classical uh, Oxbridge reject, uh, went to Edinburgh, um, 
where actually I learned a lot about Britain, which I'd never understood before as an immigrant to London. I'd never really understood that the extent to which the English were hated and quite justifiably so. Um, and then, yes, after university, I went to Russia and back to Russia and spent nine years there and worked in television, um, making entertainment programs in Russia, bringing reality shows and stand-up comedy and factual entertainment to the culture of Tolstoy and Trotsky, which was, um, you know, a really interesting way to look at the emergence of a new kind of media-powered authoritarianism, which I described in my first book, Nothing is True and Everything is Possible. Uh, now I'm back in London. I run a think tank at the London School of Economics, which analyzes propaganda and arena, think, it's called it right? Arena. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Okay. Uh, analyzes sort of disinformation campaigns, especially in the digital era, and also thinks about and experiments with pioneering ways to save deliber deliberative democracy, essentially, which I'm a little bit worried about. Yeah, indeed. And your and your latest book, so your first book, is very much focused on Russia. Um, lots of quite incredible tales of, sort of dealing with gangsters and um, gold-digging women and, and so on. Um, but this book's much more global in its scope, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, so the first one is, is, is a memoir of my time in Russia. And at the end of that book, I kind of come back to, to the West and sort of say, well, Russia's messed up, but still the West is different. Because in Russia, I try to sort of describe a system, a propaganda system, that was very different to the old Soviet one. I mean, it, it wasn't one that tried to kind of affirm a higher truth, quite the opposite at work by sort of spreading doubt and kind of arguing that truth is unknowable in almost a kind of postmodern way. But sort of with the continuing argument that, you know, therefore all truth is subjective and all facts are just interpretations. And in this dark, messy world where there's nothing to fight for, no values, no ideals, and everything's a dark conspiracy, you need a strong hand to guide you. And it was a propaganda where there was no kind of a um, you know, where, 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 well, kind of, it's kind of very interesting where politicians didn't care if they were caught lying. You know, that was the agony of my friends who worked in journalism in Russia in the little bits of independent journalism that, you know, they'd find the evidence against Putin or his, his, his various cronies about their corruption. They'd find it and show it and, uh, you know, people would not care or, or if anything, the, you know, the, you know, the, the politicians say, hey, we don't care about the facts, you know, we don't, we don't even care if you catch us lying. And they would openly contradict themselves all the time and it didn't matter. And I kind of come, came back to the West saying, okay, you know, the West is messed up in its own ways, but at least we have a rational politics and we can hold politicians accountable with the truth. And we have clear ideas of you know, left and right and rational debates and all these things. And then lo and behold, I see quite a lot of the sort of rhetorical manifestations and propaganda manifestations that I saw in Russia appear here. And, and the second book was trying to, an attempt to understand, is that, is that systemic? Uh, and if it's systemic, why? So you're quite right. I go across the world, or around the world, because it's, it's, not, it's not flat, it's round, I've discovered. Uh, and Depending on who you believe. Well, you know, I'm, I'm sticking with the, with the round bit for the moment. Um, um, but, yeah, I go, I go to South Asia, I go to China, Latin America. I basically, I blew my advance. I mean, my yeah. wife's quite annoyed. <laughs> I mean, what was the genesis of the book? Was there a particular moment? Did it feel like a natural progression from the first book to, you know, right, well, I've done Russia now. Let's see how this model, what you might call the kind of Surkov model, has expanded. Yeah. Um, it was very consciously a continuation of the first book. So, you know, you can read the second one without knowing the first one, but anyone who's read the first one will realise that, you know, I'm again treating myself as the main narrator, but very much as a character. And the character's grown up, so, you know, like in an Updike book. No, joking. Um, but, like, in the first one, I'm a young man. I'm in Moscow having a lot of adventures, and it's very much a young man goes abroad sort of book, 
but I hope undermining that deeply fatuous genre at the same time. Mm. Um, while the second one is, is me really grown up working really as I think I describe a kind of a minor foot soldier of the uh, Cold War liberal establishment or post-Cold War liberal establishment. You know, I work in the university. I you know, write little bullet point filled papers for you know, international institutions and governments and, and, and media conglomerates. So, uh, you know, I'm very much like, you know, a small, uh, a small Kafkaesque character in, in the crumbling edifice of, of the liberal order. I mean, which of those, you mentioned a few different countries, are there, which are the kind of incidents or the people you met that really stood out for you or shocked you, perhaps? That's a very, that's a, that's a very good question. In a way, the, the most memorable stuff for me in the book um, and I'm biased as the family memoir. So I interlace what's going on across the world with, with the family story, with my parents' story, and my own childhood. Because my parents, as I said at the start, they were kind of Soviet dissidents, and, and they ended up fighting for the values that constituted our idea of freedom in a democratic information space. So freedom of expression, media pluralism, kind of artistic idea of the self as being able to express themselves. You know, they, they, they were arrested for these things. And when my father worked at the BBC World Service, he kind of became a, you know, a propagandizer of, of these ideals. He doesn't mind being called that. And I contrast that with today's world where freedom of expression has been turned on its head in a media environment where you now, you know, you don't try to censor people if you're a, if you're a government, whether in Russia or China or, or, or America for that reason. You, you, you flood the information space with so much information, people don't know what's truth and false anymore. So freedom of expression has kind of like been used to drown out any chance of ever getting to the truth. And media pluralism has kind of tipped into hyperpolarization, where societies can't talk to each other, uh, to themselves anymore. So, so I kind of contrast sort of what my parents were fighting for and how all these ideals have been turned inside out. But I recommend to anyone to actually interview their parents one, one time, because one grows up knowing stories and kind of myths, but it's only when you actually interview your parents in a very disciplined way that you start to understand the depth of experience. And that, for me, was the most interesting thing. Uh, I really recommend it to everyone. I, I don't mean skeletons or anything like that. It's just you actually start to, you know, these things stop being stories that your, your parents told you. Uh, and they, you start to get a sense of the, you know, the, ma- the, you know, the massiveness of their experience. So that was that's something I recommend everyone to do, actually. Yeah, I mean, we talked... Um, one of the countries you mentioned was China and... I wonder what your reflections are on the system that they are still, I think, in the process of building mm-hmm. in terms of not just controlling their own population, but also disseminating certain ideas beyond their borders in the way that Russia has. So they have... Um, so, so, look, China is now seen as kind of the forefront of an alternative... Not an alternative, but, but a, a way of maximising the authoritarian power of the internet, but not... S- purely through kind of top-down censorship, but by, you know, through the power of AI, essentially, by uh, analysing everything that you do from, like, you know, how much wine you buy in the evenings in the store, through whether you yeah. visit your parents, through what you say politically, and combining that into a, a sort of a citizenship score, which, yeah. if you're a good boy, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, if you're a good boy, you'll progress, and if you're a bad girl, you'll yeah. go down. So that's, you know, that's kind of a way of kind of institution control into people's heads. That's still being experimented with, but that's kind of the model they've set out. Um, and, and of course, it's not so far away from the Silicon Valley dream of a purely kind of techno-driven, technocratic yeah. society where democracy is just kind of like sort of useless and slow like, and um, flawed and, and, and inefficient. Yeah. And why would you do that? 
So it's almost like they've latched onto the latent promise of, of the internet um, when we'd always thought there was going to be a liberatory and emancipatory force. So that's a big deal. Um, and, and I suppose the really scary thing about that, apart from like the way it destroys rights, is that it may deliver pleasure and efficiency. Because back in the old days, in the Cold War, it was clear that the free model was also more efficient and more fun and more pleasurable. And there was, it was attractive. While I suppose the, the argument the Chinese are making, yes, it will be authoritarian, but my God, it will be so much better. You know, you'll be able to shop so much better. You'll find online university courses so much better because we know everything about you. We, know, you know, we will give you the best form of education possible, best medical services. I mean, what they're promising is kind of efficiency and comfort and pleasure along with authoritarian control. And, and we think something I worry about a lot nowadays is, is whether we can still express the pleasure of democracy. Can we explain? We can explain probably why it's important in terms of rights, to have rights kind of abstractly. But, but, but what if their system is more pleasurable? And that's sort of a challenge that I think we really need to answer. Yes, I think... Yeah. That wasn't your question. You were beyond their borders. So, oh, well, listen, so, so, so the Russians are a, a bit... I mean, the Chinese keep a very careful eye on what the Russians are doing, but they, they're playing a different game. I mean, the, the Russians are playing giant troll, which is a kind of a, st- a strategy that's very effective for today's global information marketplace, where you don't have to have that much real power as long as you have attention. Mm-hmm. And Russia has got very good at getting attention by essentially trolling the West in, in, in various forms, whether through information campaigns or through you know, very real bombing campaigns, but very targeted ones. I mean, the ones they yeah. choose are there to show up how weak we are. I mean, the stuff in Syria partly about Syria, much more about saying, you know, the West, they're weak. Russia has got very good at that. China's playing a slightly different game because they're playing a longer game. They want to be seen as a reliable partner throughout a lot of the world. So they're not as aggressive in their campaigns. Um, Where they are aggressive is Taiwan, where they do very similar stuff to the Russians. They have troll armies. They go on Facebook pages and attack politicians they don't like. So they do it in Taiwan. And, of course, Hong Kong is becoming a flashpoint. That's somewhere where they... I think really the data's only been collected now to see whether they're tr- starting to use Russia-like techniques. But they do it domestically. So domestically, of course, they have their own troll armies known as the 50 Cent Army, who, like the Russian troll uh, factories, go online, and their job is to kind of confuse, divert attention, um, certain amount of censorship, drown out. So, so they've been using those techniques domestically that the Russians have for a while as well. And I wonder, um, obviously your background's working in, in TV. You said you worked for what, about 10 years or so. In Russia, yeah, uh, yeah, I was yes, I'm mean, other stuff so as well. And it, it strikes me, I mean, having read uh, your first book, especially that, that things have moved on since then in terms of the way that this information is broadcast. Um, which do you think is the most sort of insidious of these formats, or do they all have their own? Mm. So, is it, is it Facebook? Is it Twitter? Or is it traditional TV news or, or papers? Or? It's a great question. Yeah, you're right. My first book is about TV. I work in TV and it's about a TV model, while the second book is much more about the internet. I actually think a lot of these, the TV to internet dynamic, in many ways, hasn't always been contradictory, quite the opposite. If you look at something we talk about a lot and think about a lot, which is a question of polarization and what are known as echo chambers, which is a terrible metaphor because they're not chambers and they're not echoey. But we kind of know what we mean. People living in their own Silos is one. Silos is another one. They're all faulty, these metaphors, because actually information isn't like architecture. So so a lot of academics spend a lot of time going, well, it's not technically a chamber. But we kind of know what we mean. People's The fracturing of a common public space and the fracturing of a common perception of reality. 
Um, so there's great studies now by, by MIT, by Yohai Benkler, who's one of the premier uh, researchers of the information space in America, showing you know, this fragmentation in America, where it's much more extreme than here, really starts with cable news and talk radio. But then what social media does, it kind of just like pushes it even further. So if you're your old Fox News watcher would still sometimes like go back to CBS or, or New York Times. Social media just pushed it further and further and further. And it made the Fox News of this world even more extreme because it pushed it further. Now, there I do think that something in technology is part of this because you know there's been plenty of studies about group polarization theory, but as long as the aim is attention, you go online in order to get likes and shares. In order to get more likes and shares in a group, you take the more extreme positions. So there is something about the way that social media has been designed which furthers taking extreme positions. So... Certainly doesn't f- further like taking mild positions or the truth or, or being reasonable and dis- discursive. It's it really favors politicians who then play into that kind of scandalous and extremist rhetoric. I mean, there's a reason why Salvini and Trump and all these guys do so well online. So, so it's, it's really I think a case of of social media taking the worst of TV and and then putting it on steroids. And the question is why they did that, and part of it one explanation I have, which is kind of one that I take with a pinch of salt, but I think, I think is worth mentioning. So you talked about I worked on reality shows. So when reality shows started back at, back at the start of The Apprentice and Big Brother, people actually worked together. Contestants were quite cooperative. You know, they, they, didn't, like, they didn't fight necessarily. And TV producers were like, oh, my God, this is a nightmare. We need, we need a bit of drama for ratings. And so people like myself would kind of engineer situations where fighting became sort of inevitable yeah, we engineered conflict even more so we cast people who were bad guys and who were self-scandalous and extremist we had a trump-like personality dare i say um and remember when sort of like all these sort of negative characters started doing well on reality shows and it was that, that was a real cultural breakthrough because before that the good guy was meant to do well suddenly it was good to be bad because people couldn't stop watching it and you know and that became the norm uh, i mean Compare the first season of The Apprentice and much later seasons. I mean, it went from casting quite serious people who were interested in a career in business to it's a bit of a freak show, really. Yeah, Katie Hopkins, kind of the archetype of what you're talking about. Started on The Apprentice and is now. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, she is what she is. Um, exactly. So I saw, but we kind of managed to make people think that that's normal behaviour. And I wonder whether Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey and all these these weird amoral geniuses were designing social media. They were so kind of full of the sense that that kind of behavior is normal, is reality. They ended up be, you know, designing social media in a way that, that is a giant reality show. It, you know, social media rewards being nasty and as extreme as possible and hateful rhetoric and sort of self-scandalization. You know, you get attention through, uh, through doing ridiculous things, which in another media context would just have made you look stupid. But now it's like, oh, no, no, you want to do that. You want to do crazy stuff that makes you look ridiculous because you'll keep attention. And once you've got that, then everything else falls into place. So, so it's almost if, like if you, you know, like Scooby-Doo, when you take off the mask of Mark Zuckerberg, you finally see Simon Cowell. We live in Simon Cowell's world. We're completely surrounded by it. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. 
Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Now, I, I mean, it's a very difficult question f- for anyone to answer. But, I mean, what, what do you think some of the ways out of this are? I mean, as an individual, we can log off. We can delete our account and so on. But it's quite unlikely everybody's going to do that at the same yeah. time. So, I mean, it's kind of a bit of a liberal's dilemma, isn't it? If you advocate free speech, but then that obviously has these negative impacts as well. I mean, where, you know, where is that line? And... Hmm. and how do we start to deal with this problem? So, so I, yeah, I, I think thing that an individual can do very much is is is, is a bit of a, a bit of a nonsense, really. There, there are kind of structural issues which need to be changed. So, on the regulation front and the free speech stuff, I I, I agree. Actually, it's very interesting looking at the white paper um, that the British government put out, the white paper on online harms, which was a, a, a mad collage of many things. You can find great things in it. You can find bizarre things in it. But it established something called legal but harmful speech. Yeah, so stuff which is legal, it's not illegal speech, it's not sort of threats to violence or defamation, which already exist as, as legal categories. Legal but harmful, where they included things like disinformation, fake news, whatever you want to call it, bots, trolls, that whole thing, uh, foreign influence campaigns. And the people who were up in arms around it were freedom of expression organizations like Article 19 and Index on Censorship. They're like, there is no such thing as legal but harmful. You know, There is nothing in Article 19 of the Declaration of Human Rights, which is the one about... Uh, freedom of expression to say that disinformation is illegal. However, I, I do actually think we, we, we face a different form of censorship today, um, which is about our lack of understanding and our lack of control over how our information space is um, designed. So we don't know if something online is a real person or a Kremlin bot army or a Dominic Cummings troll army. We just don't know. There is no transparency on the internet. We don't know why an algorithm shows us one piece of content and not another. We don't know which of our own data is used to target us and why. We don't know when we see one ad from an official or unofficial campaign, because we don't actually know who's behind it. We don't know what ads they're showing our neighbor up the road. So we have no way to actually even criticize uh, or engage with um, an election campaign. So this, we're kind of in the dark. We're like Caliban on Prospero's Island, surrounded by these kind of like, you know, these ghouls and, and spirits of, of, of information, disinformation that we, we don't understand. So I think we do need more freedom of expression. Freedom of expression is not just the freedom to say things, it's the freedom to receive information. So I think we do need radically more aggressive regulation to create a transparent internet. And with teeth. So if you keep on doing deceptive campaigns online, then that's illegal. They get taken down. 
Um, that's not saying things anonymity. Anonymity is fine. A person can be anonymous for whatever reason. We're not talking about individuals here. We're talking about coordinating mass campaigns. That's the problem. And we have to have public oversight of algorithms. So Donald Trump's White House is already saying the 2020 elections in America will be rigged because Google pushes liberal news up and uh, conservative down. Yeah, and the thing yeah. is, we don't know. We have no idea. Yeah. We have absolutely no idea. So this trust is getting away from us. Look, Facebook are taking some steps towards it. They, say, they tell us they'll show kind of more ads from campaigns, but the library doesn't work very well. We need much, much more information than they're prepared to give. They're kind of giving ads and spend. We, know, we need to know who they were targeted at. Did, was it successful? Fact checkers, God bless them, they, they operate in the dark. I mean, for them to do efficient fact checking, they need to know who exactly is seeing an anti-vax mm-hmm. uh, you know, content saying that you shouldn't vaccinate your kids. Uh, who, you know, what, what, what kind of success does it have? Is it even worth targeting that piece of disinformation or should they go for another? I mean, we live in the dark. And that is a demand for more information, which is in line with freedom of expression. So I do think there is a liberal way out of, of the world that we're in. All that will do is help level up the playing field. You know, that won't change everything. If people want to be Nazis, they still can be Nazis. They still want to do stupid things. They can still do stupid things. But it will at least give the chance for those who want to fight for factual discourse, but more importantly, who want to fight for kind of like a society where we can still all talk to each other, can compete. And it'll slow down, you know, the the way campaigns are being run currently, which I think is not very good for our democracy. Do you think that there is, and slightly to play devil's advocate here, but in some cases it strikes me that what is quite mundane political procedure is dressed up as some sort of political alchemy in the interest of the people doing these things. You know, Cambridge Analytica aren't actually, you know, these wizards of politics. Um, without a doubt, without a doubt. I mean, in my book, I, in the book is stuffed full of interviews with different types of, should we call them propagandists? Uh, <laughs> no, and, and, and throughout the book, I'm kind of going, can I really believe these guys? You know, can I, can I? So I do actually influence, oh, influence I do actually interview the guy who created the company above Cambridge Analytica, um, SCL, which was the original company that, that Nigel um, Nigel Oakes, yeah, Oakes, yeah. yeah. who I'm actually known for. You know, I've, I've met him before because SCL sort of operate and think about um, Russia and defensey things, and that's something I've been thinking about as well. And he was brutally honest. He, he said, "Look, I mean, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but the interviews in the book. But basically, he, he's. He, I think he was saying that that, that the idea that you could do." at scale, in quick time, accurate behavioral change, psychological profiling online by analyzing people's likes and shares was, I think, I think, I think the word is bollocks. So he does have a methodology, but it's, it's, it's the opposite of alchemy. It's very kind of as close to scientific as, as he thinks you can get. We spend years developing it. And he focuses very much on behavioral change as opposed to attitudinal change, which is one of the big debates in propaganda. Do you try to change people's minds or their behavior? And he's really confer- concerned with the latter. And he's saying, no, you can do it. it it's, it's, he spent years and really decades trying to work it out. And, and it involves very, very deep anthropological research, sending sort of people into a community to do kind of, kind of social survey work, which doesn't even feel like social survey work. It has to be very, very natural and very, very organic. And you're trying to work out what drives behavior. And there's many, many factors to it. So it's the opposite of alchemy. He's, you know, his, his argument is that, that no, this is, I'm trying to get this to be a science as much as possible. But, you know, again, the actions of somebody like a Cambridge analyst and the reason they can provide so much, you know, do this rhetoric that has a hocus-pocus element to it is the lack of transparency. Because, you know, the, the big thing that they were really caught 
doing is using a huge amount of personal Facebook data. And the fact that we didn't know about that, the fact that Damien Collins had to call Facebook, then call Cambridge Analytica until finally you know, this came out after a long period of denial, that's the problem. You know, we're kind of, by having a system in the dark, it allows, you know, even these fears of the Kremlin's kind of like, you know, all-pervasive influence, it allows that to be augmented. So rather than a really kind of evidence-based discussion about what Putin is up to or Cambridge Analytica are up to, we end up living in semi-darkness. And that's no good for anyone. I think that, I don't think that's, it's not that hard to change. I just think there's a little bit of reluctance by all political sides to do it because, you know, they all know it's wrong, but they have kind of planned their next set of campaigns around this. Well, we're about to see. I know, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, but this is, this is the depressing thing. We're about to have another election and virtually nothing has changed since 2016 and 17. We're still going to be able to see all these non-transparent campaigns. I mean, there's been a bit of self-regulations from the tech platforms and obviously Twitter have just said they're not going to allow yes. paid political ads on their platform. But a lot of the stuff isn't paid. A lot of the stuff is covert. You know, that's not the, you know, that's, I think it's good they've done that, but that's just one tiny slice of the problem. So we're going to... Look, what's the real problem with all of this? When you have these campaigns in the dark, when we don't understand who's really behind them, when we don't actually see all the campaigns because they're being targeted at different groups, then we end up with the result that we struggle to analyse. And we're still trying to understand why did people vote for Brexit? Was it animal rights? Was it sovereignty? Was it immigration? I mean, there's no agreement because we didn't actually see the campaign. It was in completely dark corners of the internet. So we struggle to then really understand why as a society we've made decisions, which means we can't have that kind of minimal level of trust that you need for a democracy to, to, to survive. And I'm just really worried we're going to enter another election now, which is meant to clear things up, and we'll end up even more befuddled than before. And we won't have this sense of closure, which, you know, we probably need. It's really sad that no regulation was passed. I mean, I really thought that we'd get at least sort of basic electoral regulation before the next, before the next vote. Which I suppose, ironically, is a casualty of Brexit itself. So we're just West, stuck right? in this loop of like yeah, not knowing doom, why we're... the Brexit doom loop in terms of legislation. Um, You're right. Yeah, because yeah. no, exactly. No, at first, nobody wants to litigate. Nobody wants to relitigate Brexit um, for understandable reasons. But um, we all want to. You know, everyone wants sort of resolution, but we're not really creating a playing field where resolution could happen. Yeah, it's something we've sort of had on the site in a few articles is this idea that a referendum provides finality or it's you know epitomized by the phrase clean brexit which i just think is it's crazy um i mean just picking up on something you just said i mean about it it being a fixable problem and there's a lot of kind of catastrophism about these days and one thing in your latest book is that you meet some of the good guys and, I mean, what, what, what are they doing to combat this? I'm thinking of the, there's a guy in Serbia, mm-hmm. for example. Um, sure. So, 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 exactly. So, the regulation helps us create a level playing field. It won't solve. I mean, well, that's all it will do. So, at the end of the day, we'll have to compete. By we, I mean those who believe in kind of a democracy based on genuine debate and, and let's call it deliberative democracy in want of a better term, as opposed to those who kind of, you know, want to spread forms of discourse hateful ones or conspiracy-filled ones, which kind of break down the possibility of any kind of interaction. So let's say that's what I mean by good and bad. So I mean, a lot of people who are still very excited by the possibilities of data and the possibilities of the internet and nasty internet campaigns do the following. They analyze groups online, but they do it in a sneaky way, in a non-transparent way. And then they feed them bits of content that will heighten polarization, usually and heighten hatred, because that's a good, pretty effective way to get people to do stuff. Now, we could, we could actually be analysing the internet and doing the absolute opposite. We could be analysing different social groups and thinking about, okay, what are, the, what are the underlying values they have in common? How do we create content that 
whose success we measure not through likes and shares, which usually equal kind of like hate and enmity, but measure it through how much constructive discourse it managed to foster or how much trust it inspired. So there's other ways of measuring what we do. The problem is that that would be immediately be financially profitable. So we probably need some sort of public service remit for this kind of content. Sort of. So we're moving towards kind of like a, a BBC-like thinking for the digital age, which is very different to the old broadcast model. And, and I meet all sorts of people in the book who are trying very interesting things. So I meet a guy in Mexico who organizes uh, protest movements. And, and he sort of thinks that you can tell a, a society's kind of latent desires for social change and progress by analyzing uh, sort of Google searches and a few other data points. So the same way that Google could tell that um, Google could tell that there was a flu epidemic building somewhere through the searches people were using on on their platform. He says that you can analyze sort of desires for, I don't know, desires for social change in the same way. And really the internet could provide us with a connection with what, as a society, we really, we really want and are interested in. I mean, that, that, that has fascinating kind of consequences. That could mean that newspapers or, or media don't have to necessarily follow politicians, but could sort of try to understand what people really, really care about and are really concerned with. Uh, it means people could connect with each other like, and, and, and form new alliances for, for change that they weren't even aware of because you know, social groups that we didn't even think had anything in common with might have very similar concerns. So there's a big possibility as long as it's done in a transparent and ethical way. And, and he saw like, the real problem with all these bots and trolls and all this kind of like this huge amount of deceptive content online was that it was kind of standing between us and the revolutionary potential of society which is hidden in our data he's mexican so he talks in a mexican kind of trotsky kind of way always uh it's just part of the mexican discourse but um uh, i think every party in mexican has got revolutionary in it somewhere and uh so that was the great danger that, that you know the internet provided this incredible moment for us to understand ourselves better and to develop and the problem with all this this digital deceit was that it was standing in the way of that so we're kind of becoming alienated from ourselves Again, look, these are all people who are, I don't think they, any one of them has kind of a final solution, um, but they're at least all still excited by the, the, the potential that, that the internet offers. I mean, I don't think we can retreat to the old world. I don't think we can go back to Walter Conkright or, or I don't know, or Jeremy Paxman sort of saying, this is the truth. I, I do think we're out of that paradigm now, uh, for better or worse. So I don't, think, I don't think we'll go back to the old deliberative democracy. I think, I think that has broken for many reasons. But I mean, my final question really is... Um the things you talked about, I mean, they, we know they're bad and we know that they exist to some degree or other. But I wonder what you think might be the next iteration of this, hmm. of this sort of social media disinformation problem. I mean, the one that everybody talks about is sort of deep fakes and videos that, that look completely real but are actually, are actually fake. And there are, you know, there are risks that can come, come from that. Maybe the main one is actually that people just stop trusting anything. So it's this lack of trust, which is, which is kind of becoming very corrosive. Not that people are so stupid to believe stuff, but actually they just stop trusting anything. And trust is just so necessary for democracy. Because, you know, if we, if the only solution then is a strongman leader who can like, you know, guide us through this murky world, which is the argument that the Putins and the Xi Jinping's of this world make. So, so, so that, you know, that... C- Continuing lack of trust is 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 a very big uh, is a very big problem, but the other big one is is the AI that we mentioned. So then you know we're I think we're about to have this huge and maybe very productive debates about the ethics of artificial intelligence and what is what do we mean by control and what is good and bad and how do we keep a sense of 
the human in all of this. I suppose underlying this is really an existential fear that we are just data. I mean, that we can be just analyzed through our data and the algorithms will find us our ideal wives and our ideal shoes and our ideal sexual position and our own kind of complete dissolution into data. There's kind of this, you know, this sort of existential concern that the idea of the human is being undermined. And, and paradoxically, the more we express ourselves online, the more data there is about, uh, about us, you know, the, you know, our grammar, the way we use language, and so, which all gives us clues, gives the computers huge more clues about who we are. So, so what's breaking, very interestingly, is the connection between self-expression and the idea of the human in emancipation. It always used to be that the more you speak, the more you express yourself, the more, you know, the more free you are, and whether that's in jazz or rock and roll or, or modernist literature, you know, or just this whole idea we had of self-expression equals being human. And now the more you express yourself, the more you can be manipulated, you know, the more of yourself you give up. And that's a shocking idea. So I, I, I really enjoyed Jonah Kavanagh's novel Zed, which came out this year as well, which I think is a very interesting partner to my book, which is kind of a dystopia, a comedy dystopia set in a world where algorithms do everything for us. But the lovely... Um, trick she does is that it's a comedy because actually we're not algorithms and there's a great character in the book who's like, like a mark zuckerberg character who's like trained all these algorithms to find himself the perfect woman and he never can and i wonder whether the new idea of the human that's going to develop in this sort of discussion we're about to have about ai is going to be ourselves our, our, our human selves is that which algorithms can't predict so that's where we're going to exist and that gap between the algorithm and the actual lived experience now and then there's sort of various kind of like ethical things to think about as well but um maybe we can uh dwell on that as well all right well on that uh, salutary note i'm gonna bid you farewell thanks very much indeed for joining us peter and uh this is not propaganda is available in uh, all good bookshops and uh yeah, on, 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 on Kindle. On Amazon via a good algorithm. Yeah, look, it's probably already here. It'll give you a, a bunch of other books to read straight away. Exactly, including... Um, including Z. <laughs> nothing is real and everything is possible. Yes. <laughs> All right, thanks very much, Peter. Take care. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.